Well, everyone, welcome back to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin with my co-host, Mike Sauter. How's it going, Mike? Good. Uh, we know it's cold where you are. It's very cold where I am, about four degrees Fahrenheit, but thankfully, very little wind. But uh, this is winter in upstate New York. And our guest this morning, I just heard, uh, and we'll have to see if your siblings grew up there, but our guest this morning grew up or spent a few years about two miles from my home of 30 years or so, and uh, about five, uh, I don't know, like 50 yards from where my wife grew up. Yeah, that's, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. It, it reminds me. Our guest today is Addison Hodges Hart, a retired priest, right? right we're a retired Episcopal priest, am I correct, or Anglican? That's, that's correct, Episcopal. That's right. And author of many fine books and is the most recent one the silent rosary it is yeah i actually i'm really looking forward to reading they haven't read it yet but it looks really good and he's also the, among his other books uh my personal favorite because i have a personal involvement in his confessions of the antichrist which oh, wow. i had the pleasure of copy editing not too long ago there's a lot of and in fact I, re I recommended that that the publisher put it out in the first place <laughs> so he sent it back to me to copy it oh, well good. then i owe you uh, a lot of thanks so, that's right and, uh, uh, and uh, addison is one of those people i encountered on facebook and you know we, we get along really well because we like the same stuff you know and uh so whenever there's a, a nice link connected to the green man or the, the seasonal festivals Addison will always tag me in it or send it to me. And there's a lot of this. And we also have uh, a deep love for English mysticism. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to brag right now. And you had a recent, uh, I, I have to also say, Addison's uh, got a wonderful sub stack that I subscribe to called The Pragmatic Mystic. And he just wrote, he writes a lot about mysticism. And speaking of mysticism, Oh, here's the classic uh, text right here. I've got my copy somewhere. I didn't know we were talking about it today, but yeah, a win. So I bought this one. It's, I think it was Screw Books, some Watkins Books, some, some used bookstore in London on Museum Street in 1989. It's a first edition. Oh, wow. oh really? One of my prized possessions. Yeah. I've, given, a, I've given copies away, then I pick them up again. This one was right behind me, The Essentials, Her Essentials of a... Uh, mysticism but obviously it's not the uh, the classic we're all referencing here that's that's one of her uh actually the the two uh the two classics that most people reference is of course mysticism that's just i i mean when i stumbled across okay. that in my university library in something like 1978 i felt like i had found a treasure trove it was just mm -hmm. uh, a remarkable discovery nobody put me onto it i just found it there on the on the shelf but the other one of course is her pra uh, practical mysticism and yeah. when i mm -hmm. named my uh my substack the pragmatic mystic i had that in the back of my mind of course uh you know the practical mysticism. so let's start there i mean how did yeah. you find your way into into this this life you've lived with of you know of being a priest and being interested in mysticism and and in folk religion as well, I would say, right? Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So how did that happen? How that how that occur? Wow, that's a uh, that's a big that's a big question. I I of course I I all the way back in the seventies I came into uh, a a deeper Christian commitment. Uh, I'd grown up an Episcopalian, and. Uh, actually through the charismatic movement. I wouldn't describe myself as a charismatic today, but about 50 years ago I was though. And, uh, and, that, and that rejuvenated my, or ignited, I should say, my, my faith uh, to a great extent. So I don't look back at it uh, in an entirely negative way or anything. It, it opened for me uh, a lot of doors of, uh, of thought and prayer and uh, and all that, which otherwise would never have opened for me. And somewhere along the way, um, actually what I did, I ended up going to an Assembly of God uh, Bible Institute in upstate New York, Lima, New York. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What's the name of that town, Addison? Uh, Lima, they call it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I so you went to the Lima, Lima, Lima Bible. Sure Bible. 
No, yeah, no, I was on that campus the other day. You would get a kick out of what it looks like now. A well, lot of anti-Catholic books in their library, like five copies of every anti-Catholic book. But it's <laughs> well, a, I'm not entirely surprised. It was, yeah. uh, it, but during the charismatic movement heyday of the 70s, they were very careful not to alienate the uh, the Catholic charismatics. So mm -hmm. we actually uh, went as a student body and visited the local Catholic church and things like that. Very so cool. I guess things have changed some. But uh, but I only lasted there a few months. They, they, they kicked me out because I refused not to have uh, dealings with my then fiance. So so uh, being the rebellious soul that I was, I, I didn't last six months there. So it's great. <laughs> but I came back. It was an unpleasant time. And I came back and then I found myself gravitating very strongly back towards the Episcopal Church or towards Anglicanism. And, uh, and roughly about the same time, um, I, um, I got to be very friendly with the All Saints Sisters of the Poor, an Anglican sisterhood that had an American branch right there in Catonsville, Maryland, which is where I was living, this was Maryland. That's actually where I lived most of my uh, boyhood. And I got to know those sisters very well. And at the same time, I began attending the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and took a uh, uh, a, um, a history of Christianity course from uh, a Greek Orthodox professor named Aristides Papadakis, whose books I think are still in print. He has a few books in print. Uh, he was a historian, uh, mainly the Middle Ages and Byzantine history and uh, Christianity. And somehow those two things dovetailed, and I began to explore the spiritual mystical tradition through the All Saints Sisters of the Poor because um, very much uh, geared towards contemplation and contemplative spirituality. And at the same time, I was studying the history of Christianity from a Greek Orthodox professor who was very much involved in his faith. And um, from there, I went on to discover things like Evelyn Underhill, also the Philokalia and the two volumes that were um, available back in those days, which were the uh, uh, early fathers of the Philokalia and uh, writings from the Philokalia on the prayer of the heart, those, those two volumes that Faber and Faber put out. And read the entire corpus of John of the Cross and things like that. So, so became more and more uh, drawn into uh, a real uh, appreciation for that. By the time 1982 rolled around, uh, I was asked by the Religious Studies Department. They actually had a Religious Studies Department there that was quite active. This was still back when the universities were actually teaching humanities and and. Uh, <laughs> Way back in the day. Can, can you remember uh, those days? Uh, it was fun. And uh, they asked me to teach, of course, on the contemplative tradition, so uh, East and West. So I began really doing a lot of research and things like Buddhism and Indian uh, religions and uh, et cetera. And that expanded my knowledge quite a bit in, in those areas. And, um, and actually, one of my students there was a very young David Bentley Hart, my, my brother, who uh, <laughs> I, I like to tell people I taught him everything he knows. And, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's, that's basically how I got launched. And since then, I, I've had my ups and downs and, and everything, but I have pretty much kept very steadily uh, an interest in that aspect of, of faith uh, ever since. Uh, so. No, so Evelyn Underhill. So my my introduction to her, I was probably mid twenties. I'm guessing, early twenties, mid twenties. And what really attracted me to, to mysticism was, was her discussion of poets as mystics, yeah. which drew me into the. I mean, the great, you know, seventeenth century English poets, John Donne, especially uh, Thomas Traherne and Vaughan. George yeah. Herbert, you, whom you, you wrote about George Herbert recently in your blog, yeah, yeah. your Substack, um, and so I was, you know, really fascinated by these 
these writers and this idea of poetry as mysticism or as potential mysticism or as a site of contempt contemplation. And so when I went to, to graduate school, I wanted to write my dissertation on early modern religious literature, but mostly poetry. And, but I want, I felt like I needed to get a grounding in the English mystical tradition. So I forced a medievalist to give me a, a, an independent study on English mysticism, medieval mysticism. Mm. Now, let me ask you this, because it, it occurred to me, there seems to me to be something very different about that mystical tradition with Walter Hilton and the cloud of unknowing, mm. than uh, much of what you is, is called mysticism in other traditions and other parts of Europe at the time. Do you see that too? And what would you say about that? I'm interested in this, tell me. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think I think there is a, a, a very distinctive uh, English mystical tradition and a, or a, almost an English voice, which isn't always being expressed by English persons. For example, Anselm of Canterbury is from was French and uh, but was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And yet when you're reading Anselm, uh, you very definitely hear what we would think of as a medieval English mystical voice. There's something about it, uh, and it's, it's very possible, uh, possibly because at that period, French and English were very much uh, on the same wavelength. So you have William of St. Thierry, for example, uh, the Cistercian, who, although he himself is not English, seems to have had uh, a lot of influence and a lot of readers in uh, England uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, 12th century. So you have you have these figures which uh, which have influence in the development of English spirituality and uh, and but I think that what it's it's kind of hard to say exactly how I would define that. I one of the great writers on this actually is uh, was Martin Thornton. Are, are you familiar with that name? Thornton. He wrote, he, actually, he wrote a, a book, which I can highly recommend if you don't have it. Uh, this one. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, that is, that's a, that's a, it's a very good uh, study of what he calls the English uh, ascetical theology, according to the English pastoral tradition. Might be a bit dated here and there. Um and there's a wonderful two-volume uh, uh, work. I have it over here someplace by uh, Gordon Marcel. Yeah, that's uh, good. That's an excellent uh, resource as well. But uh, Martin Fortin was able, I think, to... Um, he hones it down and he shows you, for example, how the Book of Common Prayer picks up on sort of this Benedictine... Um, scholastic, but not aridly scholastic. So the idea of reason playing mm -hmm. a, a large part there uh, in that tradition and showing how it really shapes the, the, the English spiritual tradition that still you can, you can pick up, you can pick up Walter Hilton, 14th mm -hmm. century. You can pick up uh, a writer of the 17th century. Those are probably your two great yeah. uh periods of, of English spiritual tradition, the 14th medieval period, 14th century, and then your 1600s, the 17th century. And, and in that you would obviously include your metaphysical poets like Herbert and Dunn and others. I was an English literature major. I took two majors, that and philosophy. So, so I was very much uh, reading at the same time those, those uh, English literary texts at the same time that I was studying Christianity and getting involved in mystical, uh, the mystical uh, uh, tradition itself. So anyway, but um, but I would say yes, you can hear a distinctive voice, and the characteristics are well, like the English character in general, somewhat shy of too much emotionalism. So you don't get, <laughs> yep. you, you, know, you just plain don't get the same kind of 
even John of the Cross and people like that, that I love, um, much more effusive. I mean, maybe the closest would be Thomas Traherne, but even he is restrained and focusing on uh, the beauty of nature and things like this. And so uh, even he doesn't go as, become as extreme and say nuptial. Yeah. Erotic imagery and his mysticism as people on the continent uh, tended to to do. So Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know if that's uh, if that answers. Well, anything, that's that's, that's, that's very helpful. Now, what what's really struck me is uh, a <clears throat> well, you know, you, you know the the author of the Cloud of Unknowing also put out a, a translation of the mystical theology of Dionysius. Oh yeah, and and at the same time, now I, I don't know if you heard you, you bumped into this, but I, I bumped into it someplace. But um, it, those Cistercians were kind of like like uh, mysticism smugglers across the channel. <laughs> and, oh, they definitely were. Yeah. And, and one of the things that they did, I don't know if you heard this, but uh, they had, there's a translation into Middle English of Marguerite Poretta's The Mirror of Simple Souls mm. that that survived the dissolution of the monasteries. It was not burned somehow. I don't know how it didn't happen, but it was rediscovered. And I have a copy of it that I... It only it was only ever put out in a, like a scholarly uh, version. It was actually part of a journal. They put it out as as the, the one journal, and it was so even from the Vatican. It was so hard to find <laughs> that, yeah. that I had had to get the librarian at the college where I was working pay for it to to, to be delivered. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, there's something interesting here, and and I think and tell me if this if I'm right or wrong here. Um, the the when I and I think what happens is is this is where as Mister uh, as uh, Underhill was saying that it, that theology becomes poetry or poetry becomes theology because you mentioned the, the Book of Common Prayer I mean I don't think there it's almost unequal as is a beautifully poetic liturgical text. Mm-hmm. It's well, it's one of the three great. Um, what you call almost like the great code, to use Northrop Fry's term, uh, one of the three great uh, literary texts as well as a, a religious text. I mean, you have uh, you have uh, Shakespeare is one corpus, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, authorized version of the Bible, the King James Bible, and the Book of Common Prayer. Those three, if you have that, you have a code by which you can then open up subsequent English literature and and there's echoes of it even in detective novels I mean you know um, P.D. James with uh, devices and desires you know picking up a prayer of of Cranmer uh, just for the title of this um, mystery novel and so you find uh, if you know that if you know these texts then English literature becomes a lot less mysterious to you as for uh, as to you know what it is they're referencing or what they're falling back on very often. Those are the, there's others as well, Alice in Wonderland, for example. Yeah, but those three uh, in particular. And um, but you're right it, it, for I think for the Anglican tradition and and for the English tradition and English Catholic tradition. I mean, you bring people in like Newman and and others. Uh, you very definitely have a literary, uh, um, I'm being besieged here by a black cat. Which, <laughs> just, foreboding, huh? I, I just, if you can kind of bring up whatever that symbolizes, you know, just, just think about that for a while. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's very much, it's very much a, it's very much a literary tradition. So, um, Without trying to sound snobbish, it's the aesthetics of English Christianity, and you'll find this is true at Westminster Cathedral, the Catholic Cathedral, just as much as you'd find it over at Westminster Abbey. So, uh, there is a love of aesthetics <clears throat> in a good sense, that beauty uh, is important, whether it's visual, whether it's the very, very rich uh, English Carl tradition, which I, I think is virtually unequaled, at least in the West, by anybody, and the language. when they Even, even the updated language very often is still echoing 
back there a uh, it's it's uh, it's heritage. It, it still comes through in the updated um, texts that they use. So, a practical question: since your blog, your Substack is called Practical Mysticism, and you guys you know much more informed about the English mystical tradition. But if you said if you're describing English mysticism as being kind of singular and unique in the fact that I might say for our listeners, it sounded like more austere. And when you compared it with the very sensual nature of John of the Cross's mysticism, if somebody today to get into the practical, um, you know, working with college students, you know, we could sometimes just looking at prayer, you can look at that Ignatian tradition, you know, highly imaginative versus I used to work in a Trappist monastery right down the road, you know, centering prayer, that kind of more Trappist austere. Do you think any of this is tied, Addison, to the temperaments? Like if you were, you know, what you know, if you saw somebody wanting to read into it or to immerse themselves, is this the temperamental thing that some people are just going to go towards the more sensual or, you know? Yeah, I think it's cultural too. I mean, there's a reason why every culture has its own distinctives. I mean, there's very definitely a Greek kind of orthodox orthodoxy, which is Greek and not Russian. Uh, uh, there's a, a very distinctive, you, and it's very hard sometimes to even identify what it is that you're seeing there. But I mean, Spanish Catholicism, uh, Italian Catholicism, similar, but not the same. And mm-hmm. French again, uh, similar, but not the same. And so you can go from place to place and see certain cultural distinctions. Uh, temperament, maybe, I mean, but I would, I would say now my own temperament, because I, if you would say, well, what's your Myers-Briggs? You know, it's an INTJ. Okay. So, so anything that's too effusive is going to turn me off immediately. And if it's too extroverted, where I actually have to greet people in the next pew by hugging them, you know, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for the restrictions. <laughs> you all may not like them, but believe me, there yeah. are psychological reasons that I, I appreciate them, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but all that aside there, I, I think, yes, there are, there are those things that, uh, that person, the personality that, that uh, is going to make you gravitate to one form or another. And, and yeah. for me, of course, I hate to say, I mean, it's, it's terrible. So I, I wouldn't know what I would, would do if I didn't have a beautiful liturgy to worship with mm-hmm. on a, on a Sunday, I would feel absolutely destitute. I mean, I'd be, I might have to go through with it, but I would be hungry inside, you know, for, for something, something more, something uh, more, more uh, substantial. All that aside, you use the word austere, and that's where I would sort of differ. I wouldn't say that the English tradition is austere, because I think, I think what you find is a great deal of warmth. Um, uh, I mean, certainly when you're looking at someone like George Herbert, or Isaac, Isaac Walton, for example, I mean, writing a whole book, The Complete Angler, you know, where he's, he's, he's slipping in this kind of contemplative um, aspect to a book about going fishing, basically, and not talking about the English Civil War, which is, which is uh, you know, what he's, what's tearing his world apart at that point mm-hmm. in history. Uh, but here he is talking about something which is... Um, Consoling, uh, pastoral—that's a big word in the English past in the English uh, uh, tradition. You'll find that's true in uh, Walter Hilton. I mean, when you think about uh, uh, Richard Raleigh, even though he's now he's an emotional sort right there. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, but but fun and but these these are people. Uh, but with uh, Hilton and with probably with the author of the cloud uh, you probably have uh, all Augustinian canons who are writing this okay and they are primarily interested in pastoral matters so mm-hmm. when they're talking about how do you contemplate how do you uh, pray um, they're thinking about not only the religious people that they're writing to but also uh, how does the person in the pew, Right. Um, and even uh, someone like Julian of Norwich, who's who's uh, there's emotion there. There's warmth there. Mm-hmm. But a 
beautifully well thought through theology. And when, uh, and when someone like a Marjorie Kemp, and talk about another very uh, emotional type. <laughs> very, 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 very emotional. But she goes and talks, at least it seems to be that it's Dame Julian that she, yeah. she went and consulted. And, and what she received from her and from others as well all through her very stormy life uh, was past. Um, and so that's actually very central to the English tradition is, is uh, it's, it's uh, in that sense, they're very Augustinian. It's, it's, we, we don't stay up here on this level. We're not in the dry, arid thing. We're not simply down here with the emotional. It's, it's how do we bring head and heart together, mm-hmm. which, which is an Augustinian uh, way of thinking. And uh, we can criticize Augustine for a, for a lot of things, but not for that. Uh, his, his pastoral sensibilities were, were keen and sharp. And, uh, and so when you're reading Augustine, what do you get? Well, you get this beautiful blend of a deep emotion, a deep, rich passion within him, mixed with uh, an incredible intellect that mm-hmm. seems to go together naturally. And that's something that got injected uh, into the English form of spirituality early, and I would argue has lasted uh, throughout the centuries. Yeah. My, yeah. Uh, just this morning, I was thinking Augustine, I was thinking about him, but just the, um, the whole... Uh, Everything we say about him, like if, if people are sometimes I can get down on the guy, but, you know, the two things that jump out to make you see like you got to stay with this guy is, uh, you know, love God and do what you want. And then uh, the other one, you know, that which is called the Christian religion existed among the ancients and never did not exist from the beginning of the human race until Christ came in the flesh, at which time the true religion, which already existed, began to be called Christianity. You know, he, uh, he he's opening doors. Uh, even at times where I think he's kind of shutting down things, he's opening doors at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think what's, what, what, what you just said there, Addison, I think is important, is uh, this emphasis on the pastoral. And I, I think, in fact, right in here, yes, yes. never more than a couple of feet away from me is Robert oh, Herrick. The, oh, Robert the, Herrick. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who is, you know, that's... He's my ideal pastor. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to go to his church, yeah. but uh, but also in in the pastoral tradition that you're talking about, which touches on every aspect of the, of this kind of Anglican spirituality that you see in in the hymn book, mm-hmm. especially the one put together by Rafe von Williams, who is one of the more more sophisticated composers of the 20th century, who was deeply rooted in those folk traditions and made those songs so singable and made sure that the, that the that the, the the Oxford Book of Carols, for instance, is full of singable tunes. Yeah, no. Right? Rafael Williams was was uh, well. He's 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 up there at least in my top five favorite com- composers for for those very reasons. Also, if you can, I don't know if you have a copy, you might, but the, uh, but in America, the 1940 uh, Episcopal hymnal I got it. Is, is a superb uh, collection of, of hymns. I don't, I don't know, uh, Rafe Vaughan Williams, and, those, those, and you have that, you have, you have maybe, I think, the two best in the English language. I, I, yeah, in fact, we use, we adapt a lot of those for, for folk mm-hmm. instruments when we do house church. So, mm-hmm. uh, can I take a question just, and maybe we'll, this will be a little bit sideways, and then we'll then rejoin the mainstream, but our listeners and myself too, you guys know the English tradition so well. We've named the beauty of the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Bible. We've named the beauty of some of the cathedrals. We've talked about this great history with the mystics and so forth and how pastoral it could be. Maybe the microcosm within the macrocosm. Addison, you know, Mike, we, we entitled this podcast, the Regeneration Podcast. So implied in that is that like, there's something that needs a lot of regenerating. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have a little two-minute soapbox? Like, what's going on with English Christianity or something? You know, when we have these from which we came, the treasures from which we came, I know that's a huge thing, but, you know, I was just overwhelmed with what you guys were saying. Yeah. Well, it, it's still there. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, the situation uh, in, uh, in, in all of these nations, uh, Europe is, um, maybe worse even than the United States. Um, 
uh, I mean, the Episcopal Church committed suicide, is what it did. Uh, just pay more. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to go too much into that, but it, okay, it basically, yeah. it, it basically, uh, uh, by siding with just one. Well, politics is always the death of a church. It doesn't matter if it's extreme right or extreme left. If the, the minute you put politics at the center of a church's existence, uh, and you're you're putting in that, which is to divide, and Couldn't it doesn't really more. belong there. Um, yes, you have to, you have to have certain ethical and moral standards by which you make political decisions and church is a great place to get that ethical and moral formation. But, um, but what you don't want is to have uh, divisive politics from either direction. Well, the, the Episcopal church very uh, beginning 50 years ago uh, decided to move steadily in one direction and the result has been disastrous. Now, Many people in that church will tell you otherwise. You know, they're they're holding for social justice reasons or whatever. They they have this uh, they have this, but the truth is that their church is shrinking, and they have uh, they have reached a point now where it's you know it's an open question what it is even to be an Episcopalian in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, the Church of England is suffering from some of the itself right now. It's going through a very uh, a very um, bad situation of, of the same old conflict that's been afflicting the church for 50 years is the argument over sexuality. And, and the, the problem, of course, is making sexuality of such supreme uh, uh, importance that it becomes the, it becomes the barometer as to whether or not uh, you should be included in the church's life or not. And so this has become hugely divisive. So then what happens to your tradition as a result? You have this rich tradition. Uh, it's still, I mean, there, there, there are great priests I know in England, great priests in the United States, in fact. Um, but they're struggling because uh, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a tradition that's in constant turmoil. Uh, Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism, as you know, is having its own problems with polarization mm -hmm. uh, along some similar lines. So, so what do I feel about, and, and again, it boils down to feelings, not to what I, because I certainly don't look ahead with any sense of having uh, prescience or able to prognosticate what, what's going to come. But I, I wrote a book some years ago called Strangers and Pilgrims Once More. And it was it basically, it's the it's a theme now that everyone talks about. It's how are you Christian after Christendom? Because Christendom, mm -hmm. a, a, a church life that's upheld by the society and by the political system and all outside, that doesn't exist in the West any longer. That's just, just not there. And I'm afraid we're seeing the consequences of what happens. Now, it, it has both a positive side and a negative side. The positive side is perhaps what you all have experienced by bringing some of that liveliness into, uh, say, a home situation or more uh, into a living community situation. So you're able to carry on the traditions regardless of what the church uh, down on the corner is doing. Mm -hmm. But I think, I, think the, I think the reality is, is that as time goes on, we're going to see um, the tradition being held onto by a hardcore core of uh, of people who really care about it and preserve it and do it in a living and loving way, uh, and that that's that's where we're headed. I'm not sure about the survival of the institutions per se. Mm -hmm. I don't. I really don't know if that's if that's even realistic to think that in another fifty years. Now, something incredible could happen, but I, I, I have a horrible feeling that, uh, you know, you'll, you'll visit, say, Ely Cathedral in the United Kingdom and, <clears throat> and this magnificent place, and it's more a museum than it is. Sure. Or a Starbucks. Or a Starbucks. Or a lot of churches in London, right? The same could be true of the Vatican, too. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. So 
So that's that's my that's my uh, Jeremiah uh, right oh, there. Thanks for doing that. I thought it was inappropriate. I knew I was interested at that point because you had just you had talked about this wonderful sap coming up, you know, in this beautiful tree. And then I was just sitting here like, you know, I felt like an outsider because I'm usually in your roles yeah. kind of explaining yeah. to people outside the church. Why are we in such a sad state? So it was it was on my heart. To say, like, how did this all come to naught? Well, I think, I think uh, Huxley was onto something when he had one of his characters in Brave New World called uh, the Arch Community Songster, who's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> supposed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> um, and, and I that's that, that's been one of my sad things to to watch the the Anglican Church because you know I just tell people after having immersed myself in, in this spirituality for so many decades. I'm basically 49% Anglican. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to watch a lot of what, what unfolds. In fact, there, I was, you probably know this author and um, I don't like his, his theology at all. Don Cupid, you know him? I do. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know him, but I know, oh, I know. But, his, I know and, but he, he wrote this book on mysticism, which I, I didn't love, but I think he made a good point that now he thought mysticism was only a rhetorical mode, which is where I think is wrong. But I think he's right in that it is a rhetorical mode, right? There is a way to write mysticism or ways to write mysticism, um, which is interesting. But he didn't actually believe in God and he was an Anglican priest. (laughs) Okay, can we start over? But what I'd like to go from there, though, is um, to something both of us love. Now, as we all know, this week was the week of this. Oh, yeah. St. Bridget. Bridget. Bridget's Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, so these folk traditions that we both love and revere to a degree, what, where's the role of that, do you think, in the future of, of, a, of a Christianity? Well, it, you know what's interesting. Um, I don't do uh, by any chance. Just thought of. Do you have this book on your shelf, The English Year? I have it. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice book. Very good. I enjoy just picking around. It's like an almanac almost. Mm-hmm. You can just kind of pick around and find uh, find good stuff in there. One of the things he points out in his introduction there, which I just happened to pick up and look at yesterday, was that. Um, was that all of these folkways that we obviously you can trace some of the roots back to uh, to pre-Christian uh, paganism, but he completely blows out of the water this idea that all these folkways that we love that are uh, that are spiritual and uh, communal and fun and all of these sorts of things. The idea that all of those are just sort of baptized paganism, and he makes a very good um, statement in there that for a scholar like himself, you can't find that as it developed uh, before the advent of Christianity in in Britain. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that these folkways, these customs, these things that uh, obviously are still living in the minds of some, or we wouldn't have books like this book by, by, by Steve Rout that it just held up. Those things still have an appeal and people are still drawn to them, usually for the wrong reasons, because they, they're, they're going there because they can't find it in their churches. They can't find uh, the sorts of uh, fellowship and congeniality and, you know, good cider, you know, things like that. They can't find that in their own, uh, in their own institutional contexts, but they long for that. And when we begin to understand that in many ways, these folkways are profoundly Christian. They were based on a calendar. They, they tie nature together with God, with Christ, with uh, community. Um, they, uh, they celebrate the good things of life, the good things of earth. Uh, and that these things are, in a sense, uh, I mean, you can get all, uh, theological and say, well, they're all in- incarnational and use big words like that. But the truth is <laughs> much more basic than that, that um, that they are essentially a Christian form of 
of uh, of living a, a a communal human existence that celebrates creation uh, in a in a beautiful way and redemption as well and the saints and uh, I, I assume you all got your throats blessed today. I didn't because I didn't get to mass. We had uh, some of the schools were closed and they closed the daily mass. No, I couldn't get I couldn't get there myself, but. Uh, but little things like that. I mean, you, if you think about it, uh, yesterday's Candlemas, today's Saint Blaze, today's Saint Blaze, and what do you do? Well, you take a couple of those candles and you you make them into a cross and bless throats, and it looks like a completely nutty thing to do, and yet what you're doing just by a gesture like that, it, a very good example of, of the sort of thing we're talking about. It's a, it's a folk custom that draws on the idea that here's a man back in the what 300s in Armenia who was uh, executed for his faith and we're remembering him and uh, and there's a legend about how he blessed a child's throat and we all get coughing fits in, in February and in this kind of weather so let's bless throats and we have these candles which we just celebrated because yesterday was this wonderful fire feast which uh, you know celebrates the the uh, the uh, the mother of God giving birth to new life in Christ and was originally a pre-vernal uh, you know uh, celebration that spring is on the way the the season when Jesus is going to die and resurrect in the Christian term so all this ties together and people have a hunger for tying together their their entire lives with something like the, the fabric of a, of a spiritual tradition and a spiritual fellowship. So to get back to the original question, how do these things fit in? Well, who's going to do them if we don't? And who's going to make them uh, uh, tie into the Christian faith if we don't? You know, you said it all so perfectly. I'm not so sure, Addison, if I've heard it said more concisely. This is a good week to do it, right? Because right. we have Groundhog's Day. We have, you know, the the whole thing. There's a lot going on this whole week. Uh, we yeah. were so bored. But the other one is uh, Saint Blaise. You know, I'm a Catholic. I'm a layperson who runs this Catholic parish. It was mm -hmm. giving pre service breakdowns, and. <laughs> You know, again, it's something lay people can, uh, they can give the throat blessing to other lay people. It could go out from the mass setting. And, uh, you know, on Ash Wednesday in a couple of weeks here, um, nobody's coming to church anymore. But I could walk through the State University in Geneseo, New York. I could go up to the library and people are like, are you the church guy? Are you the church guy? Do you have ashes? And I do say there, I, I do invite them up to the interfaith service or the ecumenical service or the mass. But uh, you could, you could, as we all know. And so, well, um, well, yeah. and that's, that's the thing is that so many, uh, about a year ago, I don't know, maybe it was a year ago, I, I had a conversation with Jonathan Peugeot on his, his channel. And he was talking about the glories of the, of the coffee hour. And, and I remember kept telling him, that's not enough, man. You know, <laughs> that's not conviviality. And, yeah. uh, and this is like Addison said, you know, this has been my position, you know, if those, it's I, not if those guys are doing this stuff, we are, right? Because, I, you know, I have nine kids and only one pastor we've ever had, speaking of the, the Feast of the Purification, only one pastor we ever had actually churched my wife. Mm, mm. Six say months. more, say more. A church, okay, and gotcha. Yep. Have you ever seen it happen, Mike? No. Never? No. And this, this Byzantine Catholic priest said, you know, we're, we're going to church body this this sunday so what happened it's after six weeks uh, because oh, women okay. would be in kind of in seclusion after the birth of the child and their re-entrance their their re-consecration into the into the life of the church would happen then and it was beautiful it's very simple it's like a, it's a beautiful idea if you, if you if you don't uh... I mean, there's going to be people who are going to check out just about anything like that, but 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 the but the meaning of it is actually quite beautiful, quite quite affirming, and I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's. Yeah, uh, I've had never. Seen, that's the only time I've ever seen it in my, in my many years in church. That's really the refrain. You know what you guys were just talking about, myself included. I think Michael, you would agree that that's the refrain here of the Regeneration Podcast. It's it's going to be us. You know, that if I started doing it, you know, Michael, you live six hours away. You know, I, I've got some 
influence here running the parish. We get these things going this week and uh, in midsummer for John the Baptist, you know, hit those Michaelmas. Then all of a sudden I can picture them linking up, right? We get our things going and all of a sudden your 12th night thing, we start sharing stories or we can even take a trip to be with you. And it, it's all of a sudden, as they know, again, speaking of Candlemas, once it starts spreading, it can be quick, folks. You know, you don't have to look, you know, stay in the now. Don't don't worry about, uh, you know, it's, this is not clock time. Um, you know, if, if it's if it is conviviality, this thing can spread like wildfire, you know. Yeah. And 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 like like Addison said, you know, people are hungering for this. They would love to have. And this is when I, and I've written about this before. I think the attraction so many young people have had for neo-paganism, for instance, is basically what's what's told as neo-paganism, for the most part, is is medieval and early modern Christianity, you know, yeah, with all the festivals, you know, and that's what people I remember, want okay. to the creation yeah. as well as to God. I was taking a master's in theology up here in Rochester from it was a closed seminary. And uh, you know, I was studying the liturgical year and so forth. And I was just, I think my mom threw in a movie. It was still a VCR. And it was uh, the Milagro Beanfield Wars, which was, um, I think, Paul oh. Newman directed. No, Robert Redford. And it caught some of, you know, Mexican, uh, the border area, that type of festival Catholicism. And I, you know, I was taking a course in the liturgical year and saw it there. And again, I just got so hungry for it. You know, and at the same time, too, it just, it, uh, the color, the true color of that, you know, at the same time as the whole world was talking about diversity, you realize you take a color wheel and you spin it too fast and the color you get is gray, right? You know, our friend Larry Chap talks about beige Catholicism or something. Yeah. Diversity in one sense of the world, when you spin it too quick and it's not anchored to the church year, what we're all feeling now is it's just gray. It's just gray. But the liturgical year, you know, um, and uh, it's those contrasts, gray with the color. And then what I was studying in class versus what I saw in the Milagro Beanfield Wars, you know? And I think just being hungry for something and naming what we want gives us the energy. We will find a way to pull it off, but we have to, we have to nurse that, that yearning for it, like a bubble trying to reach the surface, you know, and not wait for somebody else to do it. Certainly not the priests. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, you know, they come from a generation themselves that, uh, that in a sense, uh, they do the best they can, but they really Absolutely. weren't uh, that's the sad reality, and you can't expect them to be enthusiastic about something they they don't have a real uh, a real uh, a real sense for uh, anymore. Mm -hmm. It's kind of kind of out of their system. And mm -hmm. let's face it, things in most parishes, and this doesn't it doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Episcopal or Lutheran or whatever. Right. It's so bureaucratic and so committee oriented, and and uh, everybody has to have a say in the political aspect of the of the you know, ecclesiastical politics, church-like, um, that it's, it's, it's remarkable that in some cases it's not even more dead than it actually is. You know, they, yeah. there's a way to grind the life out of something. They, they have perfected it. <laughs> Michael and I were just, before you joined us, Madison, we were talking and I hadn't heard this. Michael, share what you said about, I was mentioning committees, you know, that work through consensus. You know, there's ways other than hierarchy. I think Owen Barfield. Consensus, yeah. It's, it's not consensus. It's just talking. Who can talk the longest wins? <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's committee meetings and so forth. Too. Oh, God. Stop it. Boy, do I know them well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Addison, uh, you know, yes. your, your, your uh, Substack, it's really great, you know, and I've got to subscribe, but I, you know, I, I wanted to read your insipid, your, your, your intro. So, you know, you're making two distinctions between the, um, it's called practical mysticism and you're talking about mysticism versus pragmatism bringing in William James and then you're unpacking it further and you're talking the second distinction was which again I just finished it this morning it was uh, perennialism versus individualism I invite people oh, to your substack yeah yeah individuation not individual individuation Jungian individuation right right yeah an important distinction there invite people to your substack and let's talk about that a little bit yeah. Um, Why did you name your Substack? What What are you mining at now? You know, in, in this in this hmm. format, a Substack. You know, why did you choose practical mysticism? I love it because, again, mysticism. Yeah. Uh, if we took Karl Rahner's notion that the church will be mystical or it will be nothing, when I'm trying to unpack that for students, I'm saying the church will be 
I felt like I need to unpack it and say the church will be experiential or it'll be nothing. You know, that mysticism is something else we can make a collector's yeah. hobby. But you yeah. calling it practical mysticism really helps, you know, yeah. or pragmatic Actually, mysticism. Call it pragmatic, pragmatic. Uh, system yeah. because I, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I gave four terms that I unpacked on the substack, which, which to me are central to the substack. Now, obviously, I, I, what I want to do is cover the mysticism of, as I did uh, when I was teaching this, way back in 82 at, at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, is uh, talk about the traditions, great traditions. So I want to give equal concept to, to the mysticism of other faith traditions as well. But obviously, as a Christian myself, the main emphasis is, is, is Christianity. But the four areas that I specified as being of, of importance for my own understanding of the spiritual life were uh, first mysticism itself, which, which I defined uh, as basically a, uh, uh, I'd have to go back and actually see what I wrote there, but, uh, but mysticism itself is a, uh, uh, is something, I mean, somebody used to, I remember hearing a, a priest joke about it. It begins in a mist and ends in sizzle. That was a great line. I never heard that. I never heard that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but here I was. I was reading. Uh, I was reading uh, the uh, the great mystics at the time, and I thought, "Oh, great! You know, here's a, here's somebody who obviously doesn't know much about mysticism." But mysticism is basically uh, is 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 basically a uh, a sense of that there is a deeper reality in life that can be tapped. Uh, it's, yeah, I think it's, 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 a I think it's a, a more uh, robust word in some ways. It sounds, maybe doesn't sound robust to some, but to me it does much more so than spirituality because the word spirituality, unfortunately has come to mean such a wide range of things that it's unclear what it actually means. Mysticism draws you in a bit. It's telling you there's a certain discipline in place here. Um, it has a heritage. It goes back to certain people and places and, uh, and uh, customs and traditions which have developed over time and involve things like uh, a serious uh, commitment to things like uh, meditation, uh, to, um, to um, um, dealing with your inner life in a responsible and intelligent way. So mysticism great, actually yeah. has that going for it. The other word is pragmatism. And really, you can incorporate that into the mysticism thing, but pragmatism, and I mean that in the, uh, the uh, C.S. Peirce, uh, um, uh, uh, William Josiah James Royce, yeah. sense that, I hate to use the term, but actually I think it, it makes sense that when William James says it has to have, uh, it, it has to, you have to show me its cash value. Uh, good American cash value makes a lot of sense there. Mm -hmm. Show me the money. But in other words, if it works, not not if it is a great uh, metaphysical speculative theory or a concept out here, you know, uh, it has to come back down to earth. It's got to actually have a um, uh, a living and again experience. So, uh, which what which are we were talking about the experience a minute ago? It was. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but that's, that's really where pragmatism comes down. What is it that's working for you? Uh, because there's different forms of mysticism. There's different approaches. There's different practices. And the question is, what is it that's going to uh, open you up to, uh, to this intuitional side of your faith that is real and, and connects with you on a deep level? That, that's what pragmatism is all about. And pragmatism does mean down to earth in a way. Uh, there's, you know, sort of the uh, lazy man's uh, definition, but it has to have, it ha again, to use James's uh, words, it, it has to have cash value. It's got, it, 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 it can't just simply be up here. It's got to be mm -hmm. with feet on the ground. The third uh, word I used was uh, individuation. And I took that directly from Carl Jung and it's not individualism. Individualism is really almost the opposite. Individuation is a—it's a beautiful concept, and I'm—I'm I'm very fond of Jung. 
Uh, in fact, I had an interview yesterday with somebody on Zoom about Jung. It was just all about Jung. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and yeah, you can find problems here and there in sure. Jung's thinking. You can with anybody. But that said, um, his understanding of individuation was um, that the self is not the same thing as the ego. Okay. The ego, which orders and makes conscious aspects of ourselves is very important, but it's also a very small aspect of the self. And that the self includes uh, our personal unconscious, which is vast and undergirding that, the even vaster uh, collective unconscious, which is our inheritance, is where all the myths and the dreams and all come from, that kind of bubbling up through our personal unconscious and plague us at night in our dreams and things like that. And for Jung, it's very important that you become a self, a fully realized self, as much as is possible. And that means making the unconscious conscious so that you become aware of say your dream life uh, and we're the, maybe the first when i say the first generation i mean the first epoch modern modern human beings modern man that doesn't take dreams seriously you know it's yeah. and we partially thank freudian psychology for that it's the dumping ground of our of our yeah. minds uh, jung turns that around this from uh, from ancient times, this is how we've understood uh, God, nature, speaking to us, warning us, guiding us, directing us. How do we learn to pay attention to that? How do, how do we get past the ego so that we're not putting on the persona, the uh, right. social constructs, and getting <laughs> there? Um, <clears throat> how do we get past our shadow? The, that that or or embrace the shadow, understand that these are the neglected parts of ourselves that we don't want to face, uh, and you can see how that actually works very well in a Christian understanding of spirituality, coming to terms mm -hmm. with the fact that our ego is not is not the only thing going on. It's how do we make the unconscious conscious, and how do we let in a Christian context, how do we let God speak to us from the deepest recesses of ourselves? And, and become full selves so that's individuation and what what uh, what Jung meant by that was um, individuality how do we set ourselves apart from the herd and and are seen as separate individuation is almost the reverse it's there are divided aspects in our nature they're divided unconscious and conscious so how do we <clears throat> break down those divisions and individuate, come and, and have an inner integrity? And once we do that, we actually find our commonality with other human beings. And my argument there is, <clears throat> along with Jung, is that if you want to know God, you come to know yourself. And the way you know yourself is you realize that it's bigger than the ego. Yourself is part of nature. And that nature uh, lives, moves, and has its being in God. And that's precisely what Jung could say. I don't believe in a God. <clears throat> I know that God exists. Okay. So now we can argue about what kind of God he's talking about. But basically, Christians and Carl can, can agree on that. Uh -huh. uh, and then the last, <clears throat> the last of the four... Um, was perennialism. And by that, I wanted to be very careful with what kind of perennialism I mean, because there's different kinds. And the kind of perennialism I'm talking about is the fact that between the various faith traditions, and it's a very, it's the most basic and most simple, it's what Aldous Huxley would mm -hmm. have said. Uh, we see, for example, that there are common, uh, at, that there's a lot of differences, but there's a, there's a, there's a common tradition that we can recognize that is interpreted through these various faith traditions so that uh, this is why contemplatives east and west they you know buddhism and christianity disagree entirely about the nature of ultimate reality but when it comes to meditating and coming into contact with that reality they can agree it's an, and it's an amazing thing to watch that uh, with contemplatives coming to the heart of the matter 
they can do that very quickly and do it together and have done it for years now, you know, Absolutely. from time of Thomas Merton uh, to now and probably before that. And it gets back to the Augustine quote that you did early from his retractions that the, <clears throat> that the great religion that uh, pre-existed uh, Christianity named as Christianity was what we call Christianity today, that that, that, that tradition exists in various forms uh, because God, the word, the logos is present everywhere uh, and maybe is understood or perceived differently uh, or defined differently or conceptualized, systematized, uh, whatever, differently, but that we can still find that common spiritual core in all of these, all of these faiths. And that's what I mean by perennialism, not to get into the, right. I don't want to get into the Shuan and all of those. Right. But, but I think that's also what that kind of perennialism was uh, being espoused by in the Florentine Renaissance by Pico de la Mirandola. Yeah, Chico, absolutely. Right? And yeah. I always think, wow, is, this was happening just before the Reformation blew everything up. Because when, when the Reformation hit, then it became politics again. And here they were on the cusp of this really fascinating moment in, in Christian history that never quite realized itself, even though it, it didn't ever go entirely away. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I, you're right. It really, it really does have uh, origins uh, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Renaissance period. And, and you, you, see this, uh, you see this popping up you'll find uh, you'll find thomas brown speaking like this the um i think of young people too you know a big thing for me and it's probably only for me but i've seen it in illich who said the uh the beatitudes you know that things have come to such a pass that we can almost perceive them now they're empiric like blessed are the poor you know um and this gerald hurd who is friends with august huxley said the esoteric has become exoteric and the exoteric has become esoteric the way I've been playing that out for young people in my mind now, they're kind of center of my concern with campus ministry is that we have young guys, and I think I've said this before, they're collecting all this esoteric stuff. They're listening to Peterson and others, Pajot, and saying, you know, the tree here is the tree there and so forth. But they're having a, really a tough time making friends. And in this in this thing, I, I mentioned that Ivan Illich also said that prophecy has been supplanted by friendship in our time, that discipline. You know, ask any, I think, mystic on their deathbed like what was your great secret they'd probably whisper like i'm thinking of somebody now who's somebody i look up to friends that being said the term mysticism i think we can get a lot of young people kind of lost in the water and you know your substack is excellent but i'm thinking of a time a couple of years ago we were invited to go to shin yun which was a program from the falun gong was traveling around beautiful dancing and so forth but in that discipline of the falun gong and i don't know too much about it but they called it this title from the East, a cultivation practice, that these hmm. people had a cultivation practice. And I kind of like that, you know, because mysticism can just be another collector's hobby for people. And what I like about what you're doing, Addison, is you're embedding that and you're, you know, you're not allowing mysticism to hang out there. You're really embedding that with, you know, practical, um, hmm. pragmatic, you know, and the two aspects and so forth. But I'll just kind of offer for people too um, this hmm. notion that, you know, what we're, what we're searching for is a cultivation practice that can make us become more ourselves and probably by doing so, give us that real aptitude for friendship at this time, which is so needed with this crisis epidemic of loneliness and so forth, you know, uh, just a little bit of soapbox for me, I suppose. No, no, I agree, inspired I inspired I by your writings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if they're inspired by my writings. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, you know. Well, can I, well, if you had your Substack and it was just mysticism, I'd think, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're brilliant. I'd say, who is this going to help with that title? But uh, yeah. that the fact that you're giving it this kind of complementarity, you know, and unpacking it, 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 it yeah. makes it. And again, like we need experiential religion, um, or we're going to die. This kind of just uh, religion is the disease that Jesus came to cure in what's come of what takes place in our church right now, right? Just kind of yeah. lachrymose piety to try to have some magic affected that we get to a place called heaven. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. It, well, it's, and we don't want to go in the other direction where it becomes so cerebral and airy fairy that, that people can't, can't oh, great. Really with that, you know, so it, yeah, you're right. Even worse. Yeah. That's real. If it's yeah. not, you know, it's, I think 
important inside of my life is if it's not great if it if your spirituality is not connected to creation as well as god you're missing something you're doing something wrong and i and I, that's and that's one of the lessons that's what i think you know moves me so much about your work and your sense of humor and uh, the things you're interested in i mean i feel such a resonance with with all that you do and that's me why too. we're happy to have you come on the show yeah. today Yep, yep. Same, same with, same with the stuff I see. Uh, actually, I see Michael, and I don't see. Are you on Facebook, Mike? I am. I am. You know, I, I've normally used it for campus ministry. Uh, my face, my profile picture is the first day a student said I had to be on Facebook. I went to this copier, which is right behind me, threw my face down on the side, hit it, and that's my profile picture. <laughs> my driver's license. I'll, I'll look for you because I should. Yeah. I should be I'll find you. I'll find you, Addison. Yeah, momentarily. Okay. Yeah. I enjoy Michael's stuff and and reading his blogs. Uh, Michael, your stuff's uh, always interesting. Thanks. Yeah, I and, do a lot of writing for Front Porch Republic, this you know localist Wendell and Barry's Wendell Berry inspired thing here. And, oh, okay. Uh, All right. Yeah, and I write for Michael's journal. I think every every issue but one. Yeah. I probably read it and didn't didn't even connect oh, it, but. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, this is wonderful. We'll have to have you on again, Edison. Uh, and again, let me say that uh, uh, you're you're speaking to us from Norway. And before we signed on, Michael asked you. Well, there's no joke. I'll, we'll end with this. You know, a guy used to come to the college mass here, an old guy, and he would ask the students because uh, he would always wear suspenders. Why do I wear suspenders? And the students would say, Oh no, you got to keep my pants up. And then he'd ask the students. Why do firemen wear red suspenders and then, uh, to keep their pants up? Nonetheless, that <laughs> echoed in my brain when Michael asked you, what took you to Norway where you are now? And you said, uh, I married a Norwegian girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty simple, pretty simple. We it, thought there was going to be a great mystical answer that you felt summoned <laughs> to uh, <laughs> no, pragmatic. the world tree. Yeah, yeah, pragmatic. Well, thank you, Addison. And want to thank all of our listeners to listening to the Regeneration podcast. And uh, can you uh, any other directions to your Substack or anything else, Addison? At this time, uh, you just look uh, just look up for Addison Hodges Hart uh, Substack and or Pragmatic Mystic Substack and Google your way there, and you should find it very easily. Great fun and great conversation. So we'll see everybody next week. Take care.